Today's episode of Truth and Justice is sponsored by Stamps.com and Squarespace. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I am extremely excited about this episode. It's the one that we've all been waiting for. Before I get into the content of this episode, I want to give you a quick update on the Kenny Snow case from Tyler, Texas. It's currently Monday morning, the day after episode 206 dropped. So far today, I haven't been able to get a hold of Dennis Murphy, but I did get Bill Cole on the phone. Bill and I spent about an hour on the phone this morning, and there's a whole lot of information that I'll be discussing in two weeks when we come back to Kenny's case. But one thing that I know for sure after speaking with Bill Cole and walking through the police investigation notes with him is that this entire police file regarding the investigation of Kenny Snow's case is bullshit. Everything in it. Nothing that it says happened actually happened. And Smith County, Texas is about to deal with an extremely pissed off Bob Ruff. More on that in two weeks in episode 207. But for today's show, we're revisiting the Heyman Lee murder case. We've all been waiting and waiting and waiting for Jim Clemente to come back on and talk to us about post-defense behavior. Jim's schedule is insane. He has all the projects that he's working on on a whiteboard in his office. While I was there, there were 22 projects that Jim is working on. So we should all feel very blessed that Jim was willing to take a break from all of those projects to work on our case. After going back and forth on the phone and over emails, we finally decided that the best thing we could do to get this worked out is for me to actually fly out to Los Angeles and sit down with Jim and Laura Richards. Laura Richards was formerly with Scotland Yard, and she is another renowned behavior analysis and criminal profiler. Today's episode will be the first of what will be two or three episodes with Jim and Laura. After the two of them worked through all the case files and we went over the crime scene photos and autopsy reports and really reviewed the entire case, I decided that analyzing the post-defense behavior would be putting the cart before the horse at this point. And that is because there is another huge question mark in this case. And that question mark is Jay Wilds. Between me, all of you, and mostly the undisclosed team, we have completely picked the state's case apart. They have no legs left to stand on, other than Jay Wilde's testimony, which never really was much of a leg to begin with. But remember, there is zero physical evidence that indicates Adnan in this murder. There was not a single witness that saw Hay and Adnan together after school. There is not a single witness that saw them leaving the parking lot together, or Adnan getting in her car, or anything that ties him to Heyman Lee's murder for that matter. The only piece of evidence that suggests that Adnan Syed is the one who murdered Heyman Lee is the testimony of Jay Wilds. So late one evening in Los Angeles, Jim and Laura and I sat down over pizza and listened to Jay Wilds' recorded interrogation. It was amazing for me to watch the two of them work. They sat on opposite sides of a couch, each with their own notebook, and they didn't consult with each other at all. They both took pages and pages of notes as the recording was playing independently, without taking a chance of biasing their opinion by listening to the other person's opinion. When the interview was finally over and we stepped into the recording booth, I had no idea what to expect. What you're about to hear is Jim Clemente and Laura Richards' analysis of Jay Wilde's interrogations. And you're also going to hear my raw reactions, because like I said, I had no idea what they were going to say when we went into that recording studio. So without further ado, here's Jim Clemente, and Laura Richards. First of all, I'll say my first impressions were that he came across as relaxed, talkative. He had very quick uh, responses. Uh, there was no delays for the most part. I mean, this is just sort of norming him for this conversation before he started getting into the details. You know, he comes a lot across as very slick and almost glib in terms of affect. and very confident. He's a real smooth talker. That could be an indication that he's, uh, you know, he's, well, he's relaxed. It doesn't sound like what we would normally expect in someone who is admitting participation in the homicide of 
a former classmate of his. So it's it's a little inconsistent with what we would expect, what I would expect. What about you, Laura? Yeah, I mean, I think the start of the interview in particular, he sounds very relaxed and very confident. That's the first two things that I wrote. At, to the point where there's sort of, you know, he's laughing with the detectives and it right, seems... He's joking around with them. Yeah, almost a little bit too comfortable. Um, and certainly, you know, just as a general um, observation, um, he seemed to be very specific on certain points and then suitably vague on other key points, which just struck me as being very incongruent. Yeah, I agree. There were times when he was had an extraordinary amount of accurate detail about, for example, the positioning of Heyman Lee's body, but then wasn't anywhere near as confident as to the the, the restaurant they were at. Uh, you know, and the right. and, the, and he, at times he dropped pronouns, which is an indicator that that's not he's not buying into what he's saying. Uh, he's not even buying into it. And and another what do you mean time, by I mean, what do you mean by he dropped pronouns? Well, for example, when he said. When he was talking about burying the body, he said, um, started burying the body. He didn't say, okay. I started burying the body. He started burying the body. We started burying the body. He said, uh, started burying or digging a hole, uh, started digging a hole. So he just said, started digging a hole. He, he made some kind of little, uh, started digging a hole. Right. So that's and typically an indicator that they're... Of deception. Okay. That, that, that this is not something that he's buying into. He, he basically... He, if Adnan had started digging the hole at that point in the story, the way that, that, that Jay has been speaking and the detail that he's been speaking about how her body was found uh, laying on her right side with her arm along the side and face down, all these really specific details, if that was consistent, he would have said, at that point... I've not started digging a hole. Instead, he said, no, started digging a hole. And he said, and the cop said, well, who started digging? Right. And then he, he said, he said, well, I'd not. And that was it. He he never says that he actually participated in digging the hole at that time. So he's really not projecting a confidence in saying that bit of information. These are kind of key parts to, um, you know, the narrative and, and the story of what happened. So you would think that he would really be on point uh, when talking about the key details of what happened. And I think, you know, where he's, I call it, you know, being sort of suitably vague around things, it's almost like he's trying to give the right answers in some places when he's being asked, and then others where he seems to have a photographic memory of exactly uh, how the body was positioned. Of things which, that there are actually photographs of. Yeah. Of things that are, there are photographs of. That he should things, not have seen. Absolutely, that he shouldn't have seen when, you know, the, the time that he's with the police officers prior to uh, the tape going on. Yeah, that's a good point we didn't mention. I mean, this conversation that's recorded in the conversation, in the, in the interrogation, was somewhere between two and three hours after they started interrogating him, right? After right. they read him his rights. Sure. Yep. So, so there's a gap in time there. And that, of course, is not a good thing. When the when I mean, I've seen other cases and I, I've specifically been involved in cases in which the police officers have done the same thing. It doesn't mean every time a police officer doesn't start recording the conversation right away that something bad happens. But I have seen other cases of false confessions in which the police officers had a long period of interrogation and then later started a recording and started it as if they're they're basically starting the conversation there. Um, in this case, it's it's a little problematic because we don't know what they talked about then. And obviously, they made no notes about what was talked about then. Right, there are very few. Or very few. So we don't know any details about what was talked about. And then all of a sudden, he he's, he's completely talkative, as if he's having a conversation at a bar or a restaurant with his friends. I mean, it's that relaxed. Yeah, that's that, how it feels right from the start. Right, from the start of the audio tape. Right. So what went on before that is is really kind of interesting. Um, but when we get to the um, the first real detail that I noted, he said, you know, it was a call the night before from Adnan. And as we now know, that call actually lasted 11 seconds. And there was a whole series of other calls that Adnan made that night, right? Right. He was calling – basically, he was calling all of his friends and giving them the new the new phone number. They were all 5, 10, 15-second calls, and Jay was on that list. Right. And so in 11 seconds, you don't make detailed plans. You don't go over a whole bunch of things. 
you basically have time to say, hey, how you doing? I got my new phone. Yeah, really? Oh, great. What kind is it? Oh, that's awesome. Well, now I, I got your number. Okay, cool. That's 10 right. seconds. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't have much longer to, to, to say other things. Certainly not plot a murder. Well, that's absolutely certain. Right. They, they In 11 seconds? Yeah. They, that's not happening. No, yeah. it's not happening. And, and so if, in fact, that's what he ended up testifying to, well, clearly this – this con- this physical evidence, electronic physical evidence, actually contradicts that testimony. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was his birthday the day before, right? Correct. On the 12th? Yes. You know, so b- most people's recollections, you know, certainly when it relates to their birthday, they tend to know... That date stands out to it them. It stands yes. out much more than any other date. But he... He was kind of stammering around that date, though, right? He was kind of yeah. saying, when they asked him about it, he was like, I think it was the 12th. And he was, well, when's your birthday? <laughs> you know, and then yeah. it's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, he said at some point, they were. he was talking about then going to meet at night. And then he says, oh, yeah. And he was walking around with these red gloves on. Right. Like, out of the blue, he, he, he sort of changes course, changes direction of what he was talking about. And, you know, it's possible that, you know, he just remembered that little detail and it stuck out to him, but it's also possible that that's not the case at all here. That he was... He prompted? Was, or... Yeah, prompted or... Well, it, yeah. in that part of the conversation, Jay was describing, if my memory serves, he was talking about what discussion did you have with Adon when you got out or something along yes. those lines and all of a sudden in the middle of that sentence almost he says oh wait 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 yeah and and he had these red gloves and he and he describes these gloves in detail yeah he says oh he was walking around with red gloves on you know it, it's like oh what do you mean oh we didn't ask you what he was wearing, what right. was on his hands, what he was doing. We, you know, it was the conversation and whether he was outside or inside the car, you know. Right. And and for everybody's information, what Laura and Jim have listened to is just Jay's first taped interview. And it's point to, important to point out that you haven't heard the second interview yet because if you thought this one was bad, the second one is um, the one where there's you're hearing the taps and all that stuff. Well, so you've only heard the first one. Right. That yeah. will be for another evening. Right. Uh, um, but another thing that he, when he, when he talked about, what did you think when he talked about described her clothing? Or... Well, I was just about to say, I mean, that, there were two key standout parts for me. And one was right at the start where he talks about Adnan saying that he's going to kill her, which we'll come back to and just the way that it was put into that interview. But the second bit about the clothing just seems to be language that I wouldn't expect someone uh, certainly of his age and where he comes from to use to describe what she was wearing. So the black skirt, um, stockings, I think it says sto- top, top yeah. stockings, white blouse, but just the recall, you know, it just sounds very, you know, almost scripted rehearsed. and rehearsed. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like a natural recounting, you know, what he's seen. Do you notice anything about his tone um, changes when he's describing details like that compared to like other parts of the flowing narrative? It's really, uh, it's not that I don't, it's, I don't want to rely on it because <clears throat> of the methodology we use to listen. If I had my okay. really good, expensive noise counseling headphones on when I was listening to it, I'd probably make more of a con, con excuse me, comment about that. It's just, it was difficult under the circumstances to really hear those nuances. The circumstances being pizza and listening on my iPhone over the, yes. <laughs> the coffee table. Yes. But, um, but what you know but it's the what's more important is the content of what he's saying i think i mean the tones and the nuances of that may tell us something but to have this level of detail and to say top stockings <laughs> sounds very formal and it doesn't sound like the, the the verbiage that he typically uses there are a couple other times where he where he starts saying things like that um where he says to the best of my knowledge, and um, uh, that's right at the end, yes. isn't it? Where are you telling the truth? And he says, "To the best of my knowledge," rather than an outright yes. Right. Um, I think struck us both at the same time. Just the close of of that interview that actually doesn't close; it opens back up again because of certain things that he then puts into the right. conversation. 
And, and th- those statements to me, I always, I always call them, I refer them to myself as like qualifying statements where it's my kids do it when they're lying to me. You know, they, right. they, they tell you a story and they say, you know, as far as I can remember. And it's right. like, it's left this open end in case. Because, right. Because they don't want to get caught in a lie. He also said, from what I observed, I mean, that's also very, why didn't he just say, yeah, I saw it. Not right. from what I observed. And also, it is known to me as her car. It's known to me as her car. Yeah. Well, that's that's after somebody says, is it known to you as her car? Yes, it's known to me. But you don't just come out with that kind of a statement. Right. It's, it's literally, it's way too formal for his verbiage. Yeah, I know her car would be I've seen it normal. before. Mm-hmm. And then you pointed out something that, where he said, I've seen her, seen her drive the car back and forth to school a couple of times. And you told me that she didn't even have that car when he was at school. She didn't have a driver's license when he was in school. Yeah, so that sounds obviously like a lie. Um, But, you know, there's a... There's also, when you see back-to-back sentences where he changes his demeanor. So he said very confidently, he said, we were at a restaurant. And then he was asked, what restaurant was it? And very meekly, he says, I think it was McDonald's. He's mm-hmm. he's just, it's a, it's a throwaway line, very under his breath kind of thing. I mean, l- much less confident. Right. Right? But as you point out, what happened with the, the, the cell phone records? Yeah, in the second interview, once the police realized that the... Uh, they had the well in the first interview yeah, they had during this interview on their map they had that tower location located right there by a restaurant in that area where like that McDonald's was um, and so that's what we said in the second interview they had realized it was in the other end of town and now we've got a trip to Kathy's that comes in in the second interview right so it, it's just very very coincidental that they have erroneous cell phone tower information that that's located right near McDonald's. And he says very not confidently that they were at a McDonald's. Right. And then later, and I understand in a later interview, he changes that information to a location that is now consistent with the second tower location that they now right. have. Yeah. It's very convenient. It is. One other thing that I thought, well, there's a couple other really glaring inconsistencies here um, that, where he said that the body was located in a riverbed wash area. Well, that sounds like it should be a low-lying area. Right. And this was actually, um, it would be high ground. It was above, there was a stream down below. But this this was a hardwood forest area up up above the hill from the stream. It was in no way a, a washout area or a riverbed. Yeah, he said riverbed wash area from like a, a riverbed. Um, and then twice he very prominently, confidently says that there's snow on the ground so much so that he said it was pitch blackout, but the light was reflecting off the snow on the ground. Now that is not a detail that you just add, you know, haphazardly in the middle of, uh, you know, recounting a story about somebody being murdered and buried and you assisting. Right. That sounds very, very troubling to me because we know that the snow didn't even, well, it was hail that started falling at what? Yeah, like, it was freezing rain at 4.30 in the morning right. and then turned to ice storm, hail, and then snow. But it had, not, it had not yet snowed this year, right? It had snowed about a week prior. Um, but and, it was 55 degrees that day, right? And the day before, yes. And it, th- that snow that had come, it was a couple of inches about a week before, but... On that day, the snow turned to rain. It rained for like 12 hours, was in the 40s, and the the weather data says that there was less than an inch on the ground from a week before, and then there was above freezing two 50 to 60 degree days prior to this event occurring. So the likelihood of there being snow all over the ground that's reflecting light so that they could see when they're going to bury this body is almost zero. Right. What are your so, thoughts? You're awful quiet over there, Laura. Yeah, no, I'm just letting Jim have his uh, his chance to, to go through his uh, immediate thoughts. I mean, I certainly think, you know, if we're... The way that it's been set up from Jay in the sense of what he's saying right from the start is that it's premeditated mm-hmm. and that, you know, Adnan had murder in mind. Right. So, you know, if we take that point of, you know, him saying that he wants to kill Hay and 
he's going to, you know, carry that threat out. It certainly doesn't feel very well thought out in terms of premeditation. So it was a bad plan. It was a bad plan. Uh, you know, maybe that's because of a low level of criminal sophistication, but it certainly seems to be a very odd plan uh, to involve somebody else, um, to expose himself in a way of taking her body in a vehicle and then trying to dig a hole, um, certainly when the ground is so hard and when there's, you know, potentially snow on it. Because let's say we take Jay's account, there's snow on the ground, then they're walking through uh, a wooded area and their footprints would be very clear right. as to the area that they're going to and you would see the snow being, uh, you know, moved, etc. So, and these are the parts that I struggle with, with what Jay's saying, because it's just incongruent and some of the things are just, they just clearly didn't happen. Right. Um, you know, so... The, the very specific details that he gives about the body and having seen pictures of the, the the crime scene, he's so accurate in that respect of what the, you know, the, the depth of the uh, the shallow grave, the way her body was positioned, but yet he gets the snow wrong. Yeah, that's right. a major detail to get wrong. This is not something you, you, you know, just cook up out of the recesses of your mind. I mean, that's when you're saying snow is all over the ground, that's a, that's a major thing. It's not like, oh, and I thought I saw a leaf over there or right. a stick over there or there was a red hat on the ground. He's saying there's snow covering the ground, and we know that's not possible. Right, and, and the, it's those lies that caught my attention. I discussed the snow actually on an episode a while back that – these lies that have no utility, you know, it's not to minimize his role in the crime or anything. It's him giving a detail that just isn't possible. Even the, you know, he mentions in this first interview three different occasions where Adnan vomits during the process. Now, that story changes later, but two of those times were at the burial scene. But you would think that if he had vomited twice in the burial scene, there would be stomach contents or be something that might have been recovered by the anthropologists mm -hmm. that were... Uh, also, Jay says he was sitting on a log smoking the whole time Adnan was digging up the grave. Why were there no cigarette butts around the body? Well, the problems with lies, you know, when you, you, uh, you know, are, are using deception is you get cognitive load. And so you have to keep remembering all of those things, including the little details, too. So the bigger details, as in how her body's positioned, what the grave, you know, how shallow it was or how deep it was. Um, he clearly remembers, but then other things that perhaps are ancillary that he doesn't see as quite as important uh, are the things that probably change. And certainly at the end of the interview, but certainly uh, where he throws in right at the end that, oh, yes, and she was strangled, sort of by yeah. the way. <laughs> right. Um, which is another key part, you know, of this particular crime and, and the MO and things that Jim and I look at very specifically. But it's almost thrown in as a, oh, I After must remember to, to say this key point here. Well, and it sounded like he was being, you know, he, they... He was being prodded. We're done. We're over. Anything else you want to add? Is there no. anything else? Yes. Is there anything else? We only have two minutes left. There's only about two minutes left on the tape. But he, he says, so they, they ask him, so is everything you're telling us now? You know, before you were inconsistent, before we started the tape... But now you're, is what everything you're telling us the whole truth? And he says, to the best of my knowledge. That is not a yes. Right. That is a, I want to make sure that I hold out the possibility that I screwed up and didn't say what I was supposed to say kind of answer, mm -hmm. as opposed to, yeah, it's exactly what I remember. That's why I'm telling you this is very important. I know this is important because you read me your right, my rights, and right. we're talking about somebody's murder, and somebody's dead, and you found the body. You don't say, to the best of my knowledge, unless you're not telling the truth. Right. And and especially when you are, your story is that you were actively participating in all of this. Those are not things that you forget. Right. Yeah. And in addition, you know, and then, you know, he, he they're, they're asking about, is there anything else? And, and he says, um, yeah, he told me he strangled her. And one time he said he wanted to revisit her grave. You got to take me out there. And he said, well, when did he say that? Tell me about that. And he goes, um, <clears throat> he told me. Like the only time in this entire interview that we listened to, mm -hmm. the only time he coughs like that is at this point. Right. Right? He he, he doesn't have a cough. He doesn't. But he goes, yeah, um, cough, cough. Uh -huh. And then he said, he told me. And then went on. So it, it, to and me. And then they stop the tape. Yeah, they did they stop the tape. Shortly the after, tape. we're going to flip it over and we're right. going to. They're going to finish this. We're going to say that we're going to finish this uh, on the other side. 
And they, they were talking about this, she kicked off the windshield wiper handle situation. Right. I know there's issues with that. Yeah, and, and I to be honest with you, off the top of my head right now, I don't remember exactly all the saga of the windshield wiper, but it was... You know, it was broken or it wasn't broken and it was repaired and it was a different one. There was all, but it was in that interview. The point was they kind of, they were done. They stopped and, oh, by the way, uh, he said that she kicked the windshield wiper off. Like as a last, I mean, that was a minute before the interview ended. When he strangles her in the car. Right. Yeah. Right. But, but what he says was, and he did this very meekly when he's questioned about that. He said, that's what he told me. All right. It's the only time, like, he, he has to, he, it's like he's qualifying, like, well, I don't know for sure if that's what he did, but that's what he told me. Right. You know, and it, again, it's just, it, it's a, it shows a lack of confidence in the information he just conveyed. Um, he also said he wanted me to revisit the body. Well, wh- what does that mean? He wants, he wants Jay, Adnan wants Jay to take him out to visit the body, even though Adnan's the one with the car. Jay doesn't have a car. Right. It just, it just makes absolutely make sense. no sense. Um. And then they said, when did that conversation take place? And he said, prior to Hay being found. <laughs> what does that mean? A minute? Yeah. <laughs> a day? A week? Three weeks? I, I mean, he, Were those his exact words? Yes, prior to Hay prior being? Prior to Hay being found. Again, that's, that's, that's a very formalized cop speak kind of well, answer. It's just so vague, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's extremely it's... vague. And so he doesn't have to tie it. He doesn't have to tie it into it. If he said a day, if he said it was on a Sunday, if he said it was on a Monday, if he said it was the week before she was found, if he said that, then that's something that could be disproved. This is so. And what would prompt Adnan to say that? I mean, you know, he would remember that something happened and therefore Adnan says we need to right. go back there. And I have a theory on it is if he had, say, I don't know, notes in front of him of bullet points he was supposed to hit and maybe something was written. Adnan wanted to visit body prior to being found. It certainly felt like odd placement, you know, right mm-hmm. at the end, the close of the interview to say those, you know, three key things that um, he basically strangled her and he strangled her in the car, you know, placing exactly where it happened mm-hmm. and then saying that wanting to revisit, uh, you know, whether there was information that actually the body was revisited and, you know, further covering um, but it certainly sounds like some, to me, hearing it, some box ticking, as in things that needed to be covered. Because as for I whatever ex- reason, right? As I explained in my last interview with you, um, that I believe that the the lividity tells us that she was stored in one location in one position for a number of hours, or even a day or more. And then she was buried in a different position. And it's not unusual in cases where you, especially where you have non-criminally sophisticated offenders, that they will improve the concealment method if the body is not discovered right away. In other words, in the panic, in the frust- you know frustrating kind of hectic panic that, that, that happens after you murder somebody for the first time in your life, you don't think that clearly, you know, all sorts of... Right. All sorts of neurons are firing in your head and you're not think, thinking very clearly. Later, when you calm down, you say, okay, I got to do this better or that better. I fucked that up or messed that up. And that would that would then engender you to go back and actually bury the body better. And the only people that would do that, again, as I said in that podcast, are people who had a known connection to the victim. Because it's actually bringing you back into danger. You're risking getting caught. So going back to the body a second time is actually a highly risky behavior. Right. You know, one thing that I just, I can't believe, I think you lose the, or I lose the forest for the trees sometimes because I'm so deeply involved in all of this. In that entire interview, did he never say that she was strangled until that last little bit at the end? That's correct. Correct. Yeah. You know, I've never noticed that before, that he told the entire narrative, never said she was strangled, never said that it happened in the car. None of that until the very end and that last, oh, by the way, at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Laura That's put that up. why the end was just so interesting to me to hear. The beginning is really important because it just sets the tone of the, you know, they sound like they know each other pretty well and he's very comfortable. And then right at the end to throw those three key things in, which should have been right in the body of, of the interview. Really important points. When and, we are doing a statement analysis, for example, when we give somebody a piece of paper to write a free narrative. 
to, so they mm-hmm. can tell their story. And they did this verbally, basically. They said, tell us the story. Tell right. us what happened. And what we do when we look at a written statement is, how much of an intro is there where they're leading up to the pivotal events? How much time are they spending on the pivotal events? And then what's the outro like? This is this this one is totally skewed, okay? Right. There's a lot of intro and there's a lot of detail and incredibly articulate facts and very comfortably presented. No hemming and hawing or stammering. None of what you see in the Brendan Dassey case, by the way. Right. Um, <laughs> none of no, just where where they're pulling out little details. This, this guy is very talkative. But it's not till the end of the interview, after they've been speaking for, what? An hour. An hour. Oh. That he all of a sudden comes out with three pivotal, important crime and crime scene details that he just didn't bother to say earlier. Good Lord. I mean, it's just so out of place. Was the, Laura, was the point when he said that she was strangled, was that after the tape flip? No, it was just before. Just before. Was, yeah. Okay. That w- that was during that time when they asked anything else, anything yes. else, anything else. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So it was definitely prompted. Whether it was prompted because they had had a conversation before or whether it was prompted because they wanted more details, I don't know. I'm not willing to make that bet at right. this point. But but it it is rather suspicious on his part. In other words, in my overall judgment, this is not what I would call a truthful disclosure. This has, mm-hmm. it's just got dozens of pitfalls. It's got, his whole affect and demeanor starts off very bizarrely for this kind of a situation, for what is about to unfold. And then throughout it, it's there are things that he's very confident and smooth about, and there's things that he backs way off on, and he isn't confident, and he drops his pronouns, and he just basically almost, I mean, telegraphs that he's not actually even buying into what he's saying so let, let me ask you that i think um uh, show of hands d- can we all agree that jay's lying yeah <laughs> yeah i think we can yeah we can safely say so, that. so what i'd like what i'd like to do is then throw it to each of you and we'll start with, with laura give me your opinion first of all before i get into kind of a, a summary of the whys and why these things happen do you have anything else to add to the actual your notes from his interview well, I have a lot of, as I mentioned, you know, the placement of things where I've just written that's very odd. That's very strange to, to say certain things. I th- I think the the threat, um, you know, Adnan saying to him uh, in the car that um, that he's going to fucking kill that bitch in inverted commas. I mean, again, there's no contextual uh, analysis or no mm-hmm. real narrative about how that threat, you know, why is he saying that? Is Is that a normal thing for him to say? You know, it seems very out of place for just a little bit that I do know about Adam. You know, did he get angry and threaten people in that way and her in particular? Was there an argument? Was there something very specific? Um, it just seems to be a very odd thing to open up with. Uh-huh. Um, and also, what is their relationship? You want to talk about that? Adnan and Jay. Like, are they yeah. the best friends in the world? I mean... Do you does this do they hang out a lot? Uh, I mean, is this something that it was an aberration? Well, based on the phone records, they hang out a lot on Wednesdays. Um, it seems to be every Wednesday consistently. Um, we can only track it after this point when he had the cell phone. But on Wednesdays, Adnan had track. It looks like Jay always took his car, called his friends, probably ran around to pick up drugs. It looks like there were some of his drug contacts on Wednesday afternoon, then picked him up after track. The phone records show that that's something that consistently happened most Wednesdays. Most Wednesdays between Hay going missing and and Hay's body being discovered. Right. Yeah, and we don't we just don't know before that because he didn't have a cell phone to track that those records before that, and we and no one ever bothered to look back then. But us just looking at his phone records after this, it showed that there was this this consistent pattern of these same calls, these same things happening on Wednesday afternoons. Well, you know, it's a very odd thing uh, for. It seems out of the context with that removed, it's very hard to get a gauge on it. But certainly Jay seems, and I wrote it right at the top of my notes, he seems very matter of fact, you know, about all of this. There's no real anxiety or emotion or concern or, uh, you know, there's nothing that comes across on a human level in terms of him saying, you know, that he's sorry or he's remorseful or he just feels terrible about what happened. 
it, it just seems to be a very divorce from emotion, right. you know, facts that he is imparting for purpose. And and so what does that tell us? Either he's a stone cold psychopath, he was involved in this and he's a stone cold psychopath, or he wasn't involved in this and he's a stone cold psychopath. <laughs> right. Know, for Even someone who is just trying to relate this kind of a story you know he, he 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 there's there's no he never says anything about her he said i was in her class i sat next to her in class he never says oh my god and i saw her there and i was like shocked he actually killed her this is a human being there's nothing like that it's a right. young bubbly vivacious you know bright young girl and he is completely objectified her you know in in the sense that you just don't really feel that he's talking about you know a, a young girl who's been brutally murdered and that's effectively what what has happened right so so let me let me ask you this what i started doing a minute ago um based on what you've seen here for starters do you think that jay in, in your opinion or your assessment from what you've seen was actually involved in this i know it's hard to make a, a, a we won't hold you I'll, to it but kind of your take on it Go on, Jim. You can weigh right. in first. I'll start. Um, we have done studies, and there have been long-term psychological studies, about how people recount traumatic events. And typically, they have a lot of detail and emotional, affective information. Um, there's also other sensory information. In other words, they'll, I would have expected him to say, it, it was cold out that night, or it was damp and like it was about to rain um the, her body smelled uh, you know uh, it was it was purplish and blue in color you know mm -hmm. all these things i don't see any of that but i got body position something you can get from a picture right i didn't get you didn't get any other affective or emotional information or the or sensory, other sensory information, information. Mm -hmm. you got what was seen in a picture period all right so i think that his recounting of the events lacks the kind of information that we typically see in truthfully recounted events. So in your opinion, he none of this was true? I don't think so. I don't believe it was. Okay. What's your take on it, Laura? Yeah, well, you know, a, a similar thing in terms of the oddities. Uh, it's not necessarily the things that are present. It's the things that are absent. And, you know, I would agree, you know, in the, in the sense that the descriptives are very specific details that he does not struggle with at all, other than remembering some of the things that he's meant to be saying. That's how it kind of feels, right. um, you know, and that's why I call it sort of ticking some boxes that he's got to say certain things. I struggle with what the motivation is for him to behave in this way. Um, you know, in terms of coming up with, you know, the fact that this is, you know, a young girl who's been brutally murdered, uh, whose family want justice mm -hmm. um, and interfering with a, a, a case like this. But I certainly uh, feel that the account is one that uh, is not a true and real one that he has personally experienced. OK, great. And I agree with with both of you. And it makes a lot more sense the way you both described um, when you've really broken it down like this. And so then that leads into what you just said, which is why then? Why insert yourself in this? So so what – because if if we're correct and he actually had nothing to do with this crime, then for some reason he confessed to all of this. And so to me it seems like there's got to be one of two reasons for that. Either uh, he's a psychopath or he was coerced. And when I say coerced, I'll I'll – I'll, I'll I'll kind of separate that because there's there's ways to coerce false confessions by accident and there's ways to do it yeah. on purpose. There's inadvertent and there's deliberate. Um, so yeah, false confessions are an actual phenomenon. It does happen. Many people think and many jurors think that if somebody confesses, that means they did it. But that's not really the case all the time. In fact, the number of the cases that have been exonerated through the Innocence Project have turned on on false confessions. But in this case, you know, you have to take into a lot of, a lot of things into account with that. When you say when I, first before we get into falseness of this confession, I want to put confession into inverted commas as as Laura would say. Right. In other words, this wasn't really nothing that we heard today in this first interview was really a confession 
of anything that he did. It's more like he puts himself in the witness chair. It puts himself in a position where he observed things happening and he was told things. But in this confession, he didn't confess to any crimes. So that's the first uh, caveat I want to make here. Now, secondly, in, in, in cases of false confessions, there, you have to look at the, the guy who's doing the talking. And you have to find out, one, is he going to come up with original material, stuff that isn't known um, and can be verified? Is he going to be consistent with known facts? Or is he going to be off the charts, uh, you know, saying things that aren't really uh, verifiable or that we can verifiably contradict? And I think there's a number of both of those things in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't see any indications of fear. Um, I just based on his record and and based on what I know of him later, his later statements saying that he was fearful that the cops would find out that he was involved in drugs and drug dealing and things like that. And therefore, he wanted to basically make sure that they didn't run him up for that. And then supposedly after this conversation, then they may have had a conversation with him saying, hey, this could be a death penalty case, right? right? So if you actually helped him do this your life could be on the line. Well, that's a good way to, one, you know, totally invalidate anything that comes after that because it is not legal for cops to threaten the death penalty in order to get a confession from somebody. Right. That is That, that kind of a statement is called coerced, and you, you don't get to put that and use that in a, in a court of law. So um, if that happened, then, of course, any statement after that should have been invalidated completely. Right, and we don't know for sure if the police threatened him with that. We know that they were threatening to charge him with the murder. Um, it was the prosecutor later on that told him if he didn't sign the plea agreement and testify that he would be. Well, again, that is just, that's garbage. That should not have happened if it did happen. Mm-hmm. So, but here, what I'm trying to say is there is nothing about Jay's affect in this interview that we can detect from the audio tape that would indicate to me that he was in any kind of duress or fear of these police officers. So I don't believe at this point, unless he was being, unless his shtick is that when I get brought in by the police, I'm Mr. Confidence Man. I'm like, yeah, I'm your best friend and I'm good and all everything. I, I could, I'm going to tell you everything you want to hear. It's no problem. That could be his affect. And I think you explained that, that some of his friends described him as just, he lies. Yeah. And that's, you know, smooth talking, uh, pathological liar can do that. Mm-hmm. And so he may have done it on his own, but he could not have done what he did in this interview without having had, if he's lying about it, without having had pictures and records and times and dates and places. And those kinds of pieces of information would have to have been either deliberately or inadvertently supplied by the police. Right. During the pre-interview time. And yes. in my opinion, it well, sounded like during the interview they were being pointed out to him at some points to prompt him. Could well be. Could have been. Right at the end, I thought there was another interesting point where he says, um, yes, you guys have been totally legal. Totally legit, he said. You guys have been totally legit. my notes. Yeah. Yeah. legit. You guys have been totally legit, which I just thought, again, was a very strange comment to make. Um, You know, and then using the yes, sir, and the kind of being, being overly polite. But... You know, it kind of led me to believe just from that one statement, what else has gone on? Right. Why put that up there on the table? Yes, you you guys have been totally legit. It kind of unless there's a question of whether they had been or not. Well, they did ask, you know, and it's a typical question to ask. I mean, when you're making the record as a police officer, when you're doing an interrogation, when you're summing it up, you know, you've made these comments. These statements are all free and voluntary. Nobody's coerced you. Nobody's promised you anything. Isn't that correct? And he says, no, you guys have been totally legit. So it does actually fit with that. But it it is a sentence that he could have just answered. No. No, nobody's made any of those things. But he says, you guys have been totally legit. See, I took that a little bit differently. To me, it said, I have to listen to it again. Because when I heard it, to me, it sounded like sarcasm. Because, you know, his, his tone of his voice was lower. You know, it was, it was a little quieter. And, and to me, I, I heard in my mind, I heard, yeah, you guys have been totally legit. Like, that that's the way. Not that he, he said it exactly that way. But to me, and, and that could have been my own bias put on him. But it sounded like sarcasm to me. Yeah, well, you know. Anytime you are are restricted to an audio, 
tape, you miss 70 to 90% of what's being communicated. So it would be incredibly valuable to have a videotape of this conversation as opposed to just listening to argument, uh, excuse me, audio. Um, But it kind of fits. I mean, why I brought it up was because I think it kind of fits with when he overcompensates, mm -hmm. you know, when he sometimes says too much on things. um, And then he rolls into, you know, any other information, any other information? Oh, yes. Oh, he said he strangled her. You know, it's the way that it's placed within the closing of uh, the actual interview that it just struck me again as slightly odd. That's a good point. So what do you think that means? Well, I read it. And again, you know, we've all just said, well, you both have said two different things about how you interpreted it. Right. But for me, I interpreted it when people say things like, if I'm being totally honest, that kind of statement, I always think, oh, so the other times you're not being. Right. Question mark. Okay. Because why insert that? You know, and people tend mm-hmm. to insert it when they are not being truthful, actually. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, using these little hooks, sometimes people do things just subconsciously. But I sort of read it as, you know, there have been things, the conversations, given that they've spent, you know, up to three hours together prior to the tape going on. What else was going on pre this conversation? It was kind of a, for me, it was a, it was a nudge back to that. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I thought you were done. Yeah, I'm done. You okay. go, you go so, ahead. But there, I have to also bring up another thing, though, and that is Jay definitely had Adnan's car. Is that proven during this day? Yes. Okay. And he had Adnan's cell phone. Yes. Is that proven during this day? Well, it's acknowledged by both of them. They both say that those two things happened. Okay. So why would Adnan decide to kill Hay on a day that he didn't have his car, unless Jay was somehow involved. You see what I'm saying? In other words, why would he even, I mean, unless Jay was his alibi, unless he said, okay, now say you're picking me up at 4, and even though you pick me up at 4.45 or 6 or whatever, you know, say we did this, say we did that, whatever that is. I mean, why is he involving a second person at all? Apparently, Jay didn't help him carry the body out, Right. Right. Apparently, Jay didn't do much in terms of digging a hole. Supposedly, didn't even touch the body and help him put the body in the hole or cover it up. So, what exactly was Jay's role in all this? If he actually did this with Adnan, and it points to the fact that you know the premeditated aspect. You know, it's not thought through, or it's ill thought through. Why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. And so, although they use Jay's testimony to prove premeditation. It seems to me to contradict premeditation. It seems like a disorganized, immature, forensically unsophisticated, criminally unsophisticated murder. And yet they're proving premeditated murder. It just doesn't make sense. It flies in the face of it. You know, when you look at the pure facts. Right. And, and that's the the problem is once it goes to court for the jury. Because pe- people ask me all the time, how could a jury possibly convict him? It's like, well, the jury didn't do what we just did. A jury heard a spin of a prosecutor and a spin of a defense attorney. And they got told eight weeks of a story and then made a decision about it. But And apparently, in this case, the defense attorney was not doing her job very well. Right. But if we go back purely to crime scene analysis, I mean, for me, this is not a premeditated murder. So, you know, Jim and I work just purely from we try and strip back everything else and just go back to the facts and the evidence and the behavior. And, you know, it just seems to be a very ill-prepared or ill-thought-out plan for any sort of premeditated uh, crime here rather than that something has happened, i.e. there's been, you know, an argument or there's been, you know, sort of something has happened between her and the killer. Right. Who, and it's somebody who I would say, having profiled and reviewed many domestic violence-related murders and stalking-related murders and sexual violence murders, that, you know, it wasn't something that the person had murder in mind uh, when they met with her. And... You know, in terms of the injuries that we know that she's got two blows to the head and strangulation, you know, it feels to me from analysing, you know, the crime scene and looking at the photos, you know, that there was an argument and her head has been hit against something um, and the strangulation happens thereafter. Um, And then there's thoughts about body 
disposal. But there isn't a thought of body disposal right from the start. This seems to be something, because we know about the lividity, we know about the fact that the body was in a, in a placement for a period of time. We mm-hmm. know then a shadow grave was dug at a time where, you know, it's not a good plan to go into the woods. Right. You know, in this kind of weather, these kinds of conditions, and start digging away. The, digging that hole would have taken time and a lot of hard work. But even Jay's testimony contradicts premeditation because it's, according to Jay, Adnan asked him to go get shovels. And let's go do this. Right. right. After the fact. Now, if he had planned to murder, why wouldn't he have done he that in advance? That. Right. You would, you would have planned all these things in advance. He, he would have known. I can't just kill her and leave her on the sidewalk. Somebody might have seen her with me. Yeah. You know, I and they drove all over town looking for a place to bury the body. And it doesn't make so, sense. So before we segue in, into the, the crime scene, so do you feel that – I, I kind of got the impression from you, Jim, that you feel like this there may have been some intentional – I don't want to put words in your mouth, but some intentional coercion on the part of the fact that he had information that he could have only had from the police, or do you think it could have been accidental? You're just not not ready to make a call on it one way or the other, and that's fine I too. Mean, if it was accidental, it was um, extremely shoddy police work. Right. Uh, he has so much incredibly accurate detail, and he's presented it in a way that is so abnormal compared to just this this conversation his Mm -hmm. behavior in this conversation changes when he's talking about some specific details Mm -hmm. he gets incredibly specific about them and then other specific details he just can't even buy into them he fades away on those so i just that inconsistency throughout this and and the structurally this whole this whole conversation that he had just tells me that there's there's a problem with the kind of information he has and the kind of information he doesn't have. Right. I just don't know how that happens unless somebody uh, either either uh, handed him information or left the file in front of him so he could find it himself. Right. Your take, Laura? Yeah, I mean, you know, those very specific details about what she's wearing, about the way the body is positioned and the way that, uh, you know, the, the shallow grave is, I, I've certainly... Uh, you know, that's they're the standout features and they feel very uh-huh. uncomfortable the way that he recounts them, um, you know, in such a matter of fact way of ticking boxes of things that he needs to say. So, you know, whether that happens within the three hours pre the tape going on, uh, whether it's things that are written down, uh, whether it's, you know, things that are in front of him or he's being handed notes, you know, as, as Jim said, without being able to see uh, have any visuals of it it's very difficult to know right to rule out either of those things is it unconscious incompetence on behalf of the police um i'm not so sure it's that i think it's, it seems to be so specific mm-hmm. um in terms of the information that he must have seen if he wasn't present so you know there's a lot of three hours is a long time right before the tape goes on so it's this is very disturbing to me, let me tell you, because, I, you know, of course, I've worked, uh, you know, over 30 years in law enforcement and still work with law enforcement. Um, and the vast majority of the law enforcement officers that I've worked with are great at what they do and they're upstanding people and they would never intentionally do something like plant evidence or put together a false confession to try to convict somebody but there are people who might be trying to con- trying to shore up a case against someone that they believe is guilty and so even if jay is lying that doesn't exonerate adnan right i mean he could still be guilty but the police may have tried to shore up that case. You I mean, mean the end kind of justifies the means it, to type. some people, yeah. yes, but that that's not what I believe, right? Uh, but and and the vast majority of good law enforcement officers don't believe that. But it could be something like that, and it and it, it almost becomes sort of a you know a force of nature of, on its own when somebody when they have a strong suspicion or they have indications that somebody is guilty. And they don't have enough proof. Sometimes they'll weigh on other people. And sometimes they go to people for, uh, you know, jailhouse informants, for example, or close friends or whatever, and put pressure on them and see if they give it up. And sometimes they give it up truthfully, and sometimes they give it up, but they're lying. Right. 
One of the major problems with this, it just, you know, strikes me in particular, you know, off the back of what Jim's saying is that, you know, if it, if it were that, that they felt that they had their man, as it were, um, then they're trying to create as much evidence and, you know, other people corroborating that to fit that particular, um, you know, suspect. And they're ignoring and negating everything that is the negative about that. Um, right. I, you know, some of the details that weren't forthcoming here, they weren't pushing on those particular things. They were just prompting him in some ways and then moving it on in another way. Yeah. And they they never said anything about, oh, you buried her on the night she went missing in the snow. Right. <laughs> what sort of time do you think this is? You know, yeah. the time sequence is, is a problem as well here. They were, they were, in my opinion, I mean, I agree with both of you that they were hitting bullet points and they were, and personally what I believe happened from the police side of it is I think they had no leads. They had no physical evidence. They literally had no leads whatsoever. There was a Crime Stoppers tip call in that's still been suppressed. We don't know who it was called in about. Um, I have some thoughts on that. I'll discuss at the end of this discussion too. But, you know, there was something that led them to either the boyfriend or ex-boyfriend and, Boyfriend has an alibi. It, it's almost like there's nothing left. And then they had this, um, which you guys haven't even gotten into, but there was this uh, Anihi group consultant who was a friend of the family um, who uh, did this, who is very anti-Muslim, everything this woman has, has ever written. And, of course, she does uh, her own investigation and says this is clearly an honor killing by a Muslim, and that's the motive. So they, she gave a motive, and Jay gave a means in they went they ran with it but so jim and laura and i had intended on going all the way through the post defense behaviors of both adnan and don we actually began doing that but it was getting really late i was losing my voice and my mind we were all sweating to death in the studio laura had to be up for a 6am conference call and we all decided that we would get a better analysis when everybody was fresh and rested. But expect another episode soon where we cover the post-offense behaviors. In my opinion, Jim and Laura's analysis was absolutely spot on. And it was incredible to me that they both came to the exact same conclusions independently of each other. They didn't corroborate with each other at all. They both heard the recording for the first time with me sitting right there in front of them. And I can attest to the fact that neither one of them shared any information with the other when they were taking their notes. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the minute we shut the recording off, we went directly into the studio and began recording. So the fact that both of them came to the same conclusion independently is huge for me. And in my opinion, they just blew this case wide open. I've suspected for a long time that Jay Wilds didn't actually know anything about the crime. But now I can say that I am 100% convinced. Jay knows nothing about this crime. He was absolutely coerced into giving that testimony. And I hope that Ritz and McGillivary are held accountable for what they've done. And I want to take this opportunity to speak to Mr. Wilde for a moment. I don't know if he's listening, but I hope to God that he is. Jay, it's taken a lot of time and a lot of effort to figure out what happened back in 1999. But it is obvious at this point, we know that you had nothing to do with this. And we understand why you did what you did. But the time to hide and hope that this goes away is over. By the time you hear this message, Adnan's post-conviction relief hearing will be over. I'm recording this episode before I leave to go to the hearing, so I don't know yet how it went. But God willing, if all goes well, Adnan will be out of that prison soon. You've chosen not to come clean for all this time. You've lost the opportunity that I gave you months ago to get out in front of this. You chose not to help Adnan, and you chose to let Hayes' killer walk free. But now it's time for you to make a decision for yourself. If Adnan Syed is exonerated, this case will be reopened. I know who Hayes' killer really was, and I have the case to prove it. But if you don't come forward, now, I'm never going to get the chance. Because the Baltimore Police Department's only move if Adnan Syed gets exonerated is to go after you and charge you with the murder. For any other person to be guilty of this murder, they would have to admit corruption. They would have to admit coercion. And they're never going to do that. What they are going to do is make a case against you. You already made it for them. You've already gone on the record saying that you already know all the elements of this crime. 
the information that they fed you. You've been living with this tragedy for 17 years. And if you don't make a decision to tell the truth, you're going to pay for it for the rest of your life. And Heyman Lee's killer is going to continue to walk free. This is your chance to make the people that did this to you, that did it to Adnan, that did it to Heyman Lee, pay for what they've done. This is your chance for justice. I want to offer a very special thanks to Jim Clemente and Laura Richards for taking the time, and it was a lot of time, a lot of long hours and late nights, to work on this case with me. They did not have to do this. They are not being paid for their work. The only benefit to Jim Clemente and Laura Richards is that they can be a part of helping find the truth and bringing justice in this case. I also want to take this opportunity to let you all know that one of the projects that Jim and Laura have been working on is a new podcast. Last week, Jim and Laura launched their new podcast called Real Criminal Profile, and it's amazing. They've already dropped two episodes on SoundCloud, and their first case they're discussing is the Stephen Avery case that was highlighted in Making a Murderer. If you haven't already, please check out Real Criminal Profile by Jim Clemente and Laura Richards. And they're also joined by one of the casting directors from Criminal Minds, Lisa Zambetti. The three of them have an amazing dynamic on the show. Lisa's role is being the every person, the layman. She sits in with Jim and Laura in these episodes and asks the questions that you would ask, that you want to know. I can't recommend this show enough, and I'd love for all of you to show your support for Jim and Laura for the work they've done on this show by checking out Real Criminal Profile. It's available on SoundCloud now, and by the time you hear this episode, it should be up on iTunes as well. I also want to give a special thanks to Simba Sumba. Simba stayed up just as late as the rest of us and engineered this episode. And again, Simba volunteered his time to do so. And as always, I want to thank Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. And also, I have some exciting news about Johnny Rose. Tons of you are always asking me about where you can purchase the music from the show. Well, in just a very short time, you'll be able to do so. Johnny Rose has created a Truth and Justice soundtrack. and It'll be available on iTunes any day now. Once it's up, I'll put the link on the website, and I'll let you know where you can go to purchase the music. And when it finally goes up, I hope lots of you go and download these songs to help support Johnny Rose. All of the proceeds for the sales go directly to Johnny. I don't get any money off of this. This is something that I wanted to do for Johnny because he has volunteered all of his music and time to put into this show. Johnny has never got one red cent from giving us all the music for Truth and Justice. And for those of you that enjoy the music, this is a great way to pay him back for all of the work that he's done for us. I also want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating the logo for the show. And once again, I want to thank all of you for all of your support over the last year. And I hope any of you that haven't gotten into the new case we're working on now will go back to episode 201 and check it out. The case we're working on now, the possible wrongful imprisonment of Kenny the Blizzard Snow in Tyler, Texas, is a case riddled with conspiracy and corruption and Kenny needs just as much support as Adnan does. And speaking of Adnan, by the time you hear this, I will have returned from my trip to Baltimore. I had to record this on Monday morning, because Tuesday, February 2nd, I'm getting on a plane and heading to Baltimore for Adnan's post-conviction relief hearing. Next week's episode will be all about my trip to Baltimore and the hearing. I'm hoping that while I'm in town, I can get a chance to sit down with Rabia and maybe Susan and Saad and Omar and record a couple of short interviews while I'm there. I hope all of you keep in touch by sending your thoughts, theories, and ideas into theories at truthandjusticepod.com. New cases can be sent into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like my Facebook page, Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff, and I'm the most active on Twitter, at truthjusticepod. Please keep in touch, but as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>